Well, good morning, City Light Lincoln Church. I'm Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. I did say good morning, didn't I? Good morning. There we are. There they are. All right, just make sure I wasn't the only one in the room. Uh, if you're new here, this is our fifth week in our Gospel of John series. Uh, last week, we, uh, we got a chance to see a conversation between Jesus and a religious leader named Nicodemus. Um, he talked about being born again and what it means to be born again is that we, we uh, don't necessarily fix ourselves, but we start to take our eyes and we fix them on Jesus. And so what we found out is that Christianity doesn't mean that you move from bad to good, but that God moves you from death to life. And so this week, uh, as we jump in, we're going to be in chapter 4. Uh, we're going to find Jesus actually talking to a very unlikely person, uh, a person that uh, he wouldn't normally talk to. And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles, chapter 4, the Gospel of John, um, and we're going to dive right in. As you can tell, there's lots of verses to cover. So um, up until this point, Jesus had only talked to Jewish people. So his ex- he had exclusively talked to Jewish people, and, and even then he decided in our passage to venture out even further outside the pond because he only talked to Nicodemus just a moment ago, who was a religious leader, and now he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Now we'll see this morning that God's grace doesn't just extend to the respectable insider seeking truth like Nicodemus, but God's grace also extends to those who are far off, broken down outsiders running from the truth like the Samaritan woman. And so I don't know which one you would actually relate to more, but I don't think that matters. I I think I want to tell you that God's grace actually extends to all kinds of people and all types of people. And I think we're going to see that pretty clearly today as we approach the text. And so the first point that I have is God approaches. He approaches the unlikely. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 3. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings? With Samaritan. So there's, I think there's three reasons here that I want to point out as to why this woman is one of the least likely people for Jesus to talk to. Uh, the first one is that she's a, it says that she's a Samaritan in verse 9, and then it goes on to say that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I think that's probably the biggest understatement out of this entire passage is that they had no dealings with them. So Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile people. So they were what I like to call mixtuses, like me, okay? So they, so they didn't get along with the Gentiles because the Gentiles are like, you're mixed, you have Jew in you, I don't want anything to do with you. And then they would go to the Jews and the Jews would be like, you're not a pure Jew, so I want nothing to do with you. So they were outsiders. They were cast out uh, by different sides of the community. And, and I know what that feels like. So I'm half white and half black. And so you're like, why would that be weird? Well, let me share a little bit of how living that would be weird for you. So when I was six years old, my family moved to Nebraska for the first time. And so when I would go to school, I had kind of a different environment than what we came out of. So when I would come to class, I would be one or maybe a few minorities in the room. And I would be identified by that. I would be identified as the black boy in the classroom. And then here's where it gets really confusing. So I would head back 
to Indiana, Indianapolis, Indiana, where is, which is where my extended family live, and that's where I was originally born. And I would go hang with my cousins during the summertime, and we, they lived on the east side of town. So to let you know, people don't go on the east side of town. That's the all-black area of the city. And so when I came in, I became a minority again. In fact, they would call me the white boy. And so you see the confusion that would come back in that. On one end, they wouldn't ad- identify me with them. And on the other end, they wouldn't identify me with them. And so I was left in this place of just nebulous thinking in a place of basically ethnically and socially confused about where I belong because neither group would actually identify themselves with me. A lot like the Samaritans here. The Samaritans didn't have either side of the community, whether Gentile or Jew, affiliate with them. Jews would actually go so far as, if you were to look at a map of where Samaria is versus where Jesus was traveling. So Jesus was coming from Judea and going up to Galilee, going north. In between both of those, right smack dab in the middle is Samaria. And so, but the interesting thing about that is Jewish religious folks, and especially rabbis, would never go that route. They just wouldn't do it. They would go so far as to avoid interaction with them that they, would, they actually built a route that would go around the city of Samaria just to get there. They would go out of their way. They would inconvenience themselves just so they didn't have to interact with a Samaritan person. So for Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, essentially to go through Samaria was unheard of. The second reason why this is such an unlikely scenario, an unlikely person, is because she was a woman. So in that day and age, if you were a woman and you were a man in public, you did not have conversations. Uh, it was actually a disdain to have a conversation with a woman in public as a man. In fact, at that time, women were to be seen but not heard and probably ignored. And to top it off, this woman, this one in particular, would be seen as less than a woman to her community. So she had five husbands She had had five husbands, and the one she was with was not her husband, so she was immoral in the eyes of those people, and immoral before God. But because of that immorality, they would have disdain for her too. So picture this. Generally speaking, when a woman would go get water from a well, they would either go in the morning or the evening, and they would do it with a group of ladies. So it would be a really cool community type of thing. And so you're kind of getting together, you're sipping your coffee, you're getting water, you're getting to know each other's children, and you're having this great fellowship activity. But some would say that this woman was probably going to be excluded from that, which is why she came to the well at noon, which is the hottest part of the day, by herself. They would say that the reason why she did that is because if she went to hang out with those women, they would shun her. They would remove themselves from her and maybe even under their breath talk bad about her right when she's sitting right there. And so Jesus approached not only a woman, but a woman who was cast out from her community. She was the outcast of the outcast people. And the third reason it's unlikely is that Samaritans were a religious offshoot of Judaism. And so they would be ceremonially unclean. And so Jews actually wouldn't even touch dishes that other Samaritans might have eaten out of, much less take a bucket that she's already drank out of and drink it for himself. You see, she knew that all of these social issues were true, and so did Jesus. And yet Jesus didn't consider how uncomfortable the nature of his mission would be. 
It says that he had to go through Samaria. And I just want to point out, he didn't have to. No, Jesus had an appointment with an unlikely woman that he wanted to come and show his love to. Listen to me, City Life. Mission, the mission of God is not convenient. In fact, most times it's inconvenient and extremely uncomfortable. And in one fell swoop, Jesus went in to a place that was socially and culturally unheard of, a place that nobody wanted to go into. It was uncomfortable. His love for people involved no boundaries, no barriers, and no walls. He lovingly and compassionately reached out to this woman that nobody else wanted to talk to. So in contrast to human love, his is all-encompassing and non-discriminate. The gospel isn't color-blind, but it's color-including. It's for all tribes, tongues, and nations. Last week, Austin said that Christianity is a party for losers. Those losers are individuals loved by God who are both religious insiders who do the right things and read their Bibles and pray the right prayers like Nicodemus, but they're also the broken outsiders not searching for truth, the diverse ethnic community like our Samaritan friend here. None of us are beyond the need of God's grace, and none of us are outside the reach of that grace. And so Jesus' heart to seek and save the lost, which includes the people that know that they're lost, and the people that think they're okay. We all find a way to avoid this approach, though, don't we? When God approaches us, we find ways to avoid it, which gets me to my second point, our avoidance. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. We avoid this beautiful gift that God gives. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not thirst or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus is offering this Samaritan woman the greatest gift that she could ever desire. He's offering eternal life. He's offering up himself, his own life to her. And he's saying, girl, you've been thirsty for a long time. The gospel is vast in its covering of its issues in this world, but its ultimate is found in the quenching of the thirst of the dead heart with new life. And so we often spend our entire lives seeking to quench this thirst that's in us, right? Like we, we, we're driven by the thirst that's in our inner longings. It's innate. It's built into us. So everybody's thirsty, right? And this woman went to Jacob's well on purpose. The reason why she went to Jacob's well is because it's a place where Samaritans and Jews found significance. So Jacob was the father of all 12 tribes of Israel. And so he was kind of the father of both nations in this regard. And this well that he built, at this point in the conversation, this well had stood the test of time. It had been sitting there for 2,000 years and been used by so many people. And so Jesus coming to her saying, hey, I'm more significant than this well. I'm more significant than your lineage, than your religious background, or anything else that you're pursuing. Because although this well has stood the test of time, everyone who drinks of it will have to come back again and again and again and again. 
So when she says in verse 12, are you greater than Jacob? She's asking, are you able to be, bring more significance than this 2,000-year-old drinking fountain? And City Light, isn't that us? Isn't that who we are? We're the person going after the, the well that continues to make us thirsty. Here's some examples of how we try to quench our thirst. One, I'm going to step on some toes, money. Right? Like when we get that paycheck, the first thing that comes out of our mind is not how do I best manage this great gift that God has given me well? No, the first thought that comes to mind is I got to pay my bills and I also got to buy some trinkets to make me feel better about myself. Right? Like we like to buy the new shoes, the new cars, the new phone, the new XYZ just so that we might get trapped in this opportunity of trying to quench a thirst for something that can't do it. So let's. Let's think about the, the latest iPhone. So say you bought the latest iPhone. Well, if you've bought an iPhone before, you know a year from now, they're going to have another one. And they're going to sell that thing really well, right? They're going to say, this is the best iPhone we have ever made. It has a mediocre upgrade of the camera, and it's a, about a hair thinner than the one you have. It's the best thing ever. Wow, amazing. Now, what's probably the dirtiest part of your wardrobe? It's your shoes, right? Like, that's got to be the dirtiest part of your wardrobe. And, and I like shoes, so don't get me wrong. I enjoy shoes. However, what are shoes? They're foot coverings, right? They are there to cover up your ugly feet. And for some reason, we go crazy about it. We get a pair of them. We want to show everybody our kicks and say, hey, look at them. And then 30 days later, we're trying to dispose of them and find the next pair, right? I mean, how many different colors and kinds of foot coverings do you need to cover up your ugly feet? I mean, I don't even get it. It doesn't make any sense. And don't get me started on the Jordan phenomenon. Uh-oh. Jordan shoes, they're selling you a shoe for 300% more than what it cost when I bought them when I was a kid. And they weren't even creative. It's not a new shoe. It's just a different color. Tell me this. They are not being creative while they stick their hand in your pocket and steal your money. They're just taking it. But all we want to do is try keeping up with the Joneses. We're trying to look just a little bit better than the person next to us in order to quench our thirst. Let me say this. The person who has very little money thinks that they need more money in order to be happy. And guess what? The person who has lots of money, you guessed it. They think they need a little bit more money to be happy. Don't you see the issue in that? All right, so a guy named Rockefeller is in our history. Rockefeller became the country's first billionaire with a fortune worth nearly 2% of the entire economy for the United States. 2%. That's $336 billion in 1913, the first billionaire. Dude went into retirement early and spent 40 years in it, okay? And here's what he said in an interview one time. When they were asking, they said, how much money is enough money? Here's what his reply was, just a little bit more. Don't you see that? The money's not going to satisfy. It doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have. You're always going to come up empty. You're always going to want more, to spend more, to do more, or what have you, and you're going to be thirsty again. Now, what about our jobs? We think that once we find the perfect job, that then we'll be satisfied. And I have to be honest, my generation is probably the worst in history. The millennial generation now, our staff don't think that I belong to the millennial generation, so let me go ahead and emphasize this real quick. 
1982 to 2004 are the years that you have to be born to be a millennial. I'm 1985, so booyah, I'm a millennial, all right? So as we look at the millennials, over half of us, over half of us within 12 months of our job are looking for other employment. We're looking for other employment because we're just hoping for that one job that will satisfy our deepest desires. That one job where I don't feel like I'm going to work anymore. Or that one job where I only use my gifts and none of my weaknesses. Guess what? Work is work. And even when you find that job that feels like it's satisfying, it's going to fail you again. That paycheck is only going to be worthwhile for about two weeks on average. Can I just confess something, though? I fall in the same trap. I have a temptation in my heart to make City Light Church everything. Like, I remember thinking it through saying, man, once this church planted, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be off the chain. So, like, I'm not going to have to feel like I have to go to work all the time. I'm not going to feel the stress and the, the pains of ministry. I'm not going to have to use my weaknesses, but instead just use all of my strengths. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be fun all the time. And I have to tell you that it's work sometimes. And a lot of most weeks, I use my weaknesses rather than my strengths in order to get stuff done. Now, don't get me wrong. I love being your pastor. I love preaching the word of God. I love discipleship. I love our staff. But no preaching, no church, no staff team will ever quench the thirst that's deep down in my soul. I'll always come up short. We're imperfect people looking for satisfaction in the imperfect. It's like choosing McDonald's over a home-cooked meal. Now, my wife, she can throw down. So when I say a home-cooked meal, it is better than McDonald's, okay? And so that's what we're doing. You're going to McDonald's to get satisfied, and you're going to be hungry again. Look with me on the screen at Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13. God says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman and us that he is the living water. He is the water that satisfies. You don't have to go looking in other places to be satisfied. He's right there in front of you. He is complete and utter satisfaction. And then he goes on to say, it will be a wellspring of water welling up to internal life. It's an overflowing fountain of grace that flows over and over and over upon us. So often the world likes to present itself as energizing and exciting, but there's really nothing more boring than pursuing pleasure to satisfy the deepest longing of the human soul. It's boring. Everything that we search for, everything that we try to find satisfaction is, is a broken cistern. It's a leaky well, and you're going to come up short. And don't get me wrong. It feels good to buy a new phone or to upgrade your house or to have the corner office. But again, you're just going to be looking for the next thing again to satisfy. But Jesus is full of eternal life. He's full of eternal grace. He is awe-satisfying. You don't have to go work for it. You don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to spend more money for it. You don't have to work 80 hours a week. It is a free drink. He paid a lot for it, but it's free for you and me. And he says you can come and drink as much as you want, overflowing. 
See, like real excitement comes from drinking deeply at the well of water that springs up into everlasting life. Now, some of us in the room might be thinking, though, I don't think I'm worthy of that water. I don't think that my life matches up for that. And I think God's got something for you because the Samaritan woman felt the same way. Verse 16, God's disclosure of our sin and who he is. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You see, I love this scene because Jesus gives us so much hope here because this woman had had five different relationships, and yet God still came toward this social outcast. And in that... He showed her that she couldn't understand and we can't understand God's acceptance or his grace apart from him showing us our sin. So when Jesus asked her, go get your husband, he was bringing to light her sin. And like so many of us, she had spent an entire lifetime pursuing the one. You know, that one person that's going to satisfy you and make you happy. The one soulmate that's going to be the perfect companion for you. And what she found after five husbands is that when you find that person you think is the one, they fail and disappoint you. Which makes us think, oh shoot, did I just miss out on my one opportunity for happiness in this life? As if you're the perfect person for somebody else. We're not perfect. There is no soulmate. There is no the one. There's only Jesus. And so like her, we have to come to an understanding of our sin against God, and and then only then can we understand his grace more fully. Though Jesus knew her sin, he didn't shame her in that sin. The only thing he did was bring up a recognition of how guilty she is before a holy God and her desperate need for Jesus, her desperate need for a Savior. But we often run from this exposing of our sin. And I think the reason, this is the reason why we run to the Bible, we run to the scriptures, and we're looking for the common or the practical advice or the how-to answers from Jesus. We want the facts, and we want to know how to live like Jesus without Jesus. You can be a really good person, actually, without Jesus. You can live a really good life without Jesus. You just can't have an eternal life without Jesus. And in that avoidance of that, that's why she, she goes straight to religion here. She does exactly what we usually do. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. How did she get that idea? Our fathers worshiped this place on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So instead of wrestling with her sin and her desperate need for a savior, what she essentially did is she said, I go to church over there. That's what she said. She, she did the modern-day equivalent of raising her hand and saying, hey, I'm a Catholic, or I go to City Light Church. That's how I affiliate with God. You can get into religion just for the sake of being, a, just for the opportunity to be selfish again and self-promoting. It's easy. So we can fall into the trap of just doing church. We can do the right thing, read our Bibles, pray the right prayers without Jesus being the hero of our story and of our heart. Because if we do this without him, we don't have to recognize our need for him. If we do it out of our own strength, then we don't have to use his strength. 
This is why it's so important that he exposes our sin in our hearts, is that we need to know him, and we need to know that we need him. There's a verse that's often quoted in Christianity. It's Revelation 3.20, and here's what it says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this verse isn't a call to salvation, but a call to true worship. It's not saying that he stands at the door and knocks on an individual unbelieving heart. No, what it's saying is that he stands at the door of a group of people that are his people that are worshiping without him and saying, hey, let me in. You're worshiping without the object of worship, Jesus. He says, I want to come in. And a lot of us continue to fall into the trap of doing a lot of religious activity without actually allowing Jesus into it. It's easier to do church without having to address our hearts and the sins in them and the pride of religiosity. Jesus is offering living water. It's true life that he's giving us. It's not simply just religious, lifeless activities. Let me tell you something. Church, going to church and being a part of church just to be a better person is boring and a bad hobby. Church is a terrible hobby. There's far better things to seek and spend your time doing than using church to make yourself a better person. Christianity is not about becoming a better person. And if that's why you go to church, I promise you, you're sitting here bored out of your mind. No. Christianity, what this is about, is finding your deepest and utter satisfactions in King Jesus. Because he's much greater than your leaky faucet or your money or your job or your shoes or your car. No, he, he shakes everything up because he's, in, he's immense, he's magnificent, he's amazing, he is all-consuming, all-satisfying. And so here's what Jesus has to say to her religious response in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus doesn't want want worship that depends on a location. He doesn't want worship that depends on facts and, and understanding of words. What he's seeking is for us to worship him by knowing him. So I want to pause for a minute and, and share a little bit of a story of a friend of mine. His name is uh, Jeremy Zelini. Uh, he's a part of the crew staff at a ministry with Missouri State University. He's a worship leader. Dude is brilliant. He's got a bachelor's degree in Bible, but he also has a master's degree in Bible. Like, people love him. All of my friends that know him, they love this dude. He's super talented. He can play the violin, the piano, the guitar, the bass, the drums. Like, he can do all of these different things. And this last December, he got the opportunity to go to lead worship at the Crew Winter Conference. It's about 2,000 students in downtown Denver. He also got the opportunity to hang out with our City Light Youth staff and some of our students. And what happened while he was there is God showed up. God showed up for this dude and broke his heart. He broke his heart to reach his campus when he goes back to Missouri State. He, he gave him a new energizing life to go into Missouri State and preach the gospel. Now, I share this with you because I've never talked to or met Jeremy before in my entire life. But you thought I did, though, right? Like, I described that dude like like I loved him and I cared about him and I knew him so well. And, And you know how I got that information? I did a cursory scroll through dude's Facebook page. 
And I think this is how we approach Jesus. We know what he's done, but we scarcely know who he is. The only way you get to know somebody is actually spending time with him. You can't just scroll Facebook and think you're going to get to know Jesus. You have to spend time with him, grow in intimacy with him, know him like a friend. So when was the day that you met Jesus? And maybe you're sitting in the room and you just realize you really didn't meet him, but you've made an acquaintance with him. Knowing facts about him is not going to be enough. You have to know him. And Jesus in our text tells this woman who he is, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He said, I'm that dude. I'm who you're looking for. He looks at her and she looks at him and she says, I know who God is. I know who he is. And he's saying, dear child. I'm right here. I'm right in front of you, and you're missing it. Church, don't miss this. This is the first time that Jesus actually plainly tells someone, I am the Christ, I'm the Savior of the world. And look at who he said it to. It wasn't a politician. It wasn't a religious leader. It wasn't someone who had it all together. No, no. He didn't even share it with his disciples. He goes to the woman who nobody cares about, nobody wants to talk to. He goes and shares that with her because he loves her so deeply. He pursues all kinds of people. You have to see that. Once Jesus pursued you and revealed himself, we can't help but to be changed forever. And that gets me to my last point. Our disposition after drinking the living water. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and into the people. And she said to them, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Get this. Now you got to remember that this woman was not the popular girl in town. Was she? And yet, her first response after drinking the living water of Jesus is to go to that very town who rejected her and share them with them Jesus. It's subtle, but you have to look at the implications of how she did it. You have to look at it. So, women at that time, if they were to bring their jugs to go get water, it was for a week's supply of water. So when she showed up, that was the expectation, is that she would get a week's supply of water, she'd come back home, she'd drink it, be thirsty again, and come back. But once she drank the water that is Jesus, the living water, she left it behind. She left it all behind because she knew that she wasn't going to be thirsty again. She did it without hesitation, Last week, Austin said some very significant things, but one of them in particular I think is extremely pertinent for what we're looking at today. It was when he talked about repentance, when he said it is basically a change of mind and change of heart, and here's how he explained it. He says, repentance isn't just turning away from sin, it's turning to Jesus. The Samaritan woman and us today are challenged with an opportunity to drink of the living water and leave our buckets behind. Leave the broken cisterns, leave the leaky faucets behind. 
When we know Jesus for who he is, we no longer need earthly things to satisfy us. Our disposition is to leave the buckets behind, not to pick it back up, but to continue to drink of the living water that is a continual overflowing fountain. Now, most of the time, when we get to this point in the passage, a pastor would usually transition to a moment to say, hey, you need to share the gospel. You need to share your faith with other people. But I'm convinced that if you knew how much we are the Samaritan woman, there'd be no need to tell you to go share your faith. Jesus didn't sit there with this woman and say, therefore, go and make disciples of those people who don't like you. He didn't do that here. I don't have to tell you to go reach out to people that are different than you because I'm convinced, I'm, I know that if you understand how much you and I have in common with this woman, I don't have to say a word about it. Jesus is the only one worthy to quench our thirst and of our worship. Not because of what he's done, but because of who he is. He's the God that came to earth and had humble conversations with the least of likely of people. He became the living water for us by dying on the cross for our sins and raising from the grave. He did it for his goodness because of his goodness and not because of ours. He's unlike any other God. This God is amazing. Because he's the loving God of the universe, he came, he bled, and he died for us. And we get the opportunity to recognize that today. Uh, In a moment after I pray, I want to invite you to take communion where we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. Now, the cool thing about our story today is that Jesus approached this woman right where she is. He didn't say, clean yourself up and then come. He approached her right where she is. And since Jesus doesn't change... If you're sitting in the room and you haven't drank of that water yet, you can. You can drink the living water in today. All you must do is turn from your sins and fix your eyes on Jesus and trust in that. Trust that he died for your sins, that he is sufficient sacrifice for that. And you could be a part of his family today.